Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth Energy and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford, whose mission is to create interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals. To learn more about Worldview, visit worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. 60. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we tell stories of people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm Leslie Chang. On today's show, we're going back thousands of years to the Pleistocene, when humans first began colonizing the planet. Maybe you already know much of this story. When scientists examine the geologic record, it's clear that in many parts of the world, the arrival of Homo sapiens coincides with the extinction of large animals. This is called the megafauna extinction, and it gets right at the heart of the Anthropocene question. Just how far back in time have humans been the dominant species? And what does that say about our relationship to the rest of life on Earth? We talk about all of this today in an interview with paleontologist Liz Hadley. Liz is especially focused on what happened when humans arrived in North America. Among other techniques, her lab recovers ancient DNA in order to study the ecology and evolution of vertebrates, as well as how ecosystems respond to perturbations. This interview was conducted by Mike Osborne and Sarah McCurdy. So in this interview, we're hoping that you can really take us through the Pleistocene. What did it look like? What did it feel like? Um, Just give us a better idea of what the world looked like. So during the Pleistocene, which is, you know, pretty much around 2 million years ago to about 10,000 years ago, those are kind of ballpark times. 
During that time, there were fluctuations in glacial cycles, and those glacial cycles that then ended up in interglaciers, what was happening was the growth of ice sheets. Most of those ice sheets are in the northern hemisphere because there's not as much land in the southern hemisphere. Most of Siberia, northern Europe, um, Scandinavia, and most of Canada, Alaska were covered with ice. South of the ice sheets in the northern hemisphere, there was kind of a piling up of diversity. So in North America, for example, we had camels, we had dire wolves, we had saber-toothed cats, there were giant bison, mammoths, mastodons, these things called gompotheres, which are big relatives of elephants. We had uh, giant animals that are relatives of armadillos called glyptodonts, huge you know, kind of armored species. And then there were a lot of sloths. At the end of the Pleistocene, climates warmed. And so the ice started melting, which meant that sea level rose. And what was a land bridge because of lower sea levels between Asia and North America during the Pleistocene, and it served as a corridor connecting Asia and North America, as sea levels rose, that corridor became disconnected. And so the animals then became essentially isolated on in North America and on other continents around the world. Also, humans, which had occupied this land bridge for probably, you know, thousands of years before the end of the Pleistocene, they got isolated in the Americas as well. And then they started colonizing the Americas. They went from north to south very, very rapidly. As a matter of fact, some of our earliest human sites are in the very southern tip of South America at a site called Monteverde. So that was around 14,000 years ago. And the synergy of humans and climate likely led to what we know of as the late Pleistocene megafaunal extinction. Well, so, okay, so I, I want to build up to the, the megafaunal extinction. I think that, you know, this is going to sound almost stupid, but I do think that there are some people out there who haven't really engaged with paleontology mm -hmm. since grade school. And it is sort of astonishing to think about how many very large animals and, and what the landscape of biodiversity looked like in North America prior to the arrival of humans. So it is kind of fun to think about what it might have been even right outside of our doors. You know, I mean, the California state fossil is the saber-toothed cat. I mean, this is a, a giant cat that had large sabers. And ironically, this particular kind of cat carnivore has evolved many times in, in Earth's history. But this was the last one left on the planet, and now we don't even have a saber-toothed cat after the extinction of this particular individual species. But there were dire wolves, which are wolves much larger than our gray wolf. Um, imagine that. There were giant bears. The short-faced running bear had legs much longer than our grizzly bear could run on open plains and had a skull almost twice the size of a grizzly bear. So I think one of the biggest things to realize is that on the landscape, in terms of the mammalian menagerie, the animals were just, we still had small mammals. We still had rodents and mice and, you know, marmots and things like that. But we had just a diversity of massive animals. And just the actual size of animals influences the vegetation, not only in terms of if you imagine mammoths and mastodons, they have to eat an awful lot. So not only are they consuming a lot more vegetation, and then in turn, they're serving as food for these large carnivores, 
as they move through the landscape, they disturb a lot of vegetation. One thing, for example, is that the presence of these smaller, fast-growing deciduous forests like aspen and birch forests that grow very rapidly, willows, for example, that they probably were nowhere near as extensive in the Americas as they are now, simply because we had all these mega herbivores out there consuming every little thing that was edible. So to take a step back on this, you know, much more diverse ecosystem of large animals is in thinking about the co-evolution of these plant eaters and animal eaters, you know, the carnivores and the herbivores, one of the things that's been ascribed to this long-term evolution, I mean, animals started, mammals started getting pretty big at the end of the Cretaceous tertiary extinction. And I know we're not really describing that point in time, but one of the things that happened is as herbivores get big and have longer legs, so they become better at cursoriality, which is running on the, the, the tips of their toes, carnivores also get better at running. They get longer limbed, they get larger. And so there's this kind of evolutionary, what's been called an evolutionary arms race between carnivores and herbivores. And that's really exacerbated and kind of exploited as grasslands in the Americas and around the world open up. You know, there are lots of herbivores that are larger than the biggest carnivores, and that provides a really interesting question about, again, the evolutionary pressures on the carnivores, because what ends up happening is instead of chasing them, become they can become more sit-and-wait predators, waiting for the herbivores to come to them, or they become more social. So think about wolves and communally hunting animals that are much larger than they are. They become social. So in a sense, they become a mega organism. They also become very intelligent as they become more social. So there are all sorts of really interesting things about the evolution of these kind of big Big categories of we you know trophic levels and basically we call them guilds of animals the yeah. herbivores the predators and and how they co-evolve is really interesting cool so something that caught my attention a few minutes ago made me think how do we have such detail on things that are happening thousands of years ago obviously one way is the fossil record and while we were doing a bit of research we came across a new technique they're using ancient DNA I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about how you piece these details together and start thinking about how details make up this larger ecosystem. So the biggest thing with ancient DNA, and I mean, people have dreamed of kind of, in a sense, sequencing fossils for a long time. The problem and kind of the biggest hurdle that had to be overcome is that once an organism dies, it starts to degrade. And in terms of the DNA repair mechanisms, they just stop. And so your const your DNA is constantly getting nicked and damaged and repaired and fixed and we're jettisoning stuff that's junk. And once something dies, those mechanisms disappear. So what immediately starts happening is that pieces of DNA start getting fragmented. And they're getting fragmented by UV light, by all sorts of microbial activity, by whatever means. They're getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So one of the limits has been we'd like to have larger sequences, genetic sequences of DNA in order to identify what species we're looking at. And what's happened is not only are we able using PCR polymerase chain reaction um, to make many, many millions of copies, 
it has also allowed us to to look at smaller and smaller fragments of DNA. And so because of computational advances, now we can assemble tiny fragments of DNA into large genomes. So for example, you know, billions of base pairs. We can now assemble those things with some degree of rigor because of computational advances. And let, let me move into the kind of the questions that I particularly am intrigued by. So species are comprised of individuals, and those individuals represent or are parts of populations. Populations are groups of individuals that have the likelihood of breeding together. They're dealing with the same environmental perturbations. They have very close evolutionary history. Those populations, in a sense, are the toolkits for species futures. Whether or not individuals are exchanged between populations, whether they're really isolated and they're just adapting to local conditions, um, whether there's a lot of genetic diversity in that population or a very little amount of genetic diversity, all of those things matter for the future fates of those populations and species. So I've always been interested, as I said, I work on the perturbations to species and populations because I want to know when the climates change, what do animals do? Like what happens to them? Okay, so let's say you're going from the Pleistocene, it's cold, you have maybe in this particular part of the world it's dry but really cold, and then all of a sudden you go into the Holocene and it becomes warm and wet. Like Okay, if you're a seed eater, when you go into the warm and wet environment, your seeds are degrading. They're, they're, they're just disappearing because they're, you know, eaten by fun, fungi and uh, bacteria or something. How do you store them? So that's a, a very simple question. Do, the, do these animals that rely on those seeds, do they just get up and go? Do they change their food? Do they become stressed and die out locally? Do they, you know, what happens to them? So those responses to environmental changes are the real, they're the, to me, the real meat of evolution and ecology. And it happens at that population level, which again means piecing together individuals and trying to make uh, some sort of understanding for the species. So in terms of genetics, by being able to go back and look at a lot of individuals' genetic diversity. It's it's very powerful for allowing you to think about, is there a lot of genetic diversity? Did there become less during this environmental change? Did there become more? Is that a sign of movements of individuals between populations? Is it a sign of some sort of population bottleneck? They went through a big you know decline in their population. Those are things that we can reconstruct with some degree of confidence by having genetic data. Certainly, you know, as we're talking about perturbations, one of the big ones is right. the arrival of humans. And I, I, I'd like you to take us through, uh, you know, some of the sort of 30,000 foot view observations of human dispersal around around the globe and begin to address this question of, you know, the megafauna extinction and, and how it uh, interacts with the arrival of uh, Homo sapiens. So, you know, humans went out of Africa somewhere between modern Homo sapiens went out of Africa somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 years ago. And basically, that's the beginning of our global domination. So we go out of Africa, we kind of end up, you know, down to the south and the east, going through India, and then we start moving to the north, colonizing Eastern Asia. One part of our ancestral group ends up colonizing Australia, which is really interesting because Australia was never connected to Asia by a land bridge. So they're going across this very deep ocean barrier, and so they probably did it by a boat. And that happens somewhere, it's, it's hard to know exactly, but it happened somewhere between 40 and 60,000 years ago. 
and they're also going to Europe. So they came out of uh, Saudi, somewhere in Saudi Arabia, and they swing around and go kind of to the north, um, west, and colonize Europe. So the other thing that happens, and this doesn't happen until I mentioned somewhere probably around 20-some thousand years ago, humans are occupying this land bridge between Asia and um, North America. And we know this in a couple of ways, mostly, you know, it was initially kind of reconstructed based on genetic data and the timing of mutation in genetic data in, in, in North American and South American. Um, Native American populations. Native American populations, exactly. So the these people then start moving and they move really rapidly. So basically, by the time we have their first indication of being in the Americas, they're everywhere. And more importantly, they're all the way to the tip of South America. And then because this is such a recent event, this is, as I said, the earliest sites are somewhere around 14 to 15,000 years ago. They're coming with a toolkit. So by the time we really detect them across the western part of North America, they have a toolkit called Clovis. Clovis are these giant projectile points that were probably embedded on spears. And they're, and they're just absolutely exquisite tools. There's nothing really like them in the old world, and we don't really have any precursors in the new world. So they kind of are interestingly emerged from nothing, which is really, you know, really compelling. So it's like a technology that just Absolutely. popped out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, and there probably are places where they, they honed this, but we haven't really discovered where they are. Maybe it was in the Bering Land Bridge. Right. Anyway, so they come and they are using these, and then that transition after the extinction, particularly of the mammoths and mastodons, which are they're likely to be hunting with these spears, gave rise to a, another culture called the Folsom, and that basically started taking hold around 9,000 years ago. And, and most people think that that was used for hunting bison, which are still extant. So anyway, so these anim- these people are everywhere simultaneously in the Americas, and they're consuming megafauna, we think. So, and I say we think because ironically, even though these megafauna went extinct in the Americas, coincident with human arrival and with deglaciation, there aren't a lot of sites with human tools, human artifacts, and humans, and these megafauna. There are a few, but they're not as many as we might have predicted based on this instant extinction of these uh, megafauna. And we know it happened pretty fast, by the way. The other, let, me, let me back up to Please. talk a little yeah, yeah. bit about different the extinction event in other places in the world, because in North and South America, it was very intense, and we lost about half the large-bodied animals. It's called the megafaunal extinction, animals above about 100 pounds. Around the rest of the world. So as I said, it's hard to know exactly the timing of human arrival in Australia and the coincidence of the megafaunal extinction there because they did lose a lot of large marsupials. But it looks like in Australia, the extinction of the megafauna there happened coincident with human arrival, which was earlier than the arrival in the Americas, suggesting a role for humans independent of climate change. There's hardly any evidence of extinction in Africa suggesting this kind of long-term evolution of the African megafauna with humans. There's a little bit of extinction in Europe. Asia, we don't know a lot about because we haven't, we don't really have a good assembly of data, but there certainly were some animals lost there. In India, we know almost nothing. So in general, human arrival is coincident with, a, with extinction, although it's not 
beautifully hammered down everywhere in the world, and certainly in the Americas, it is coincident with this climate change. So it sounds like, uh, just just to just to paraphrase and to sort of put it in in some words, it sounds like we have some correlation, and it also, but it's not perfect. But it also does sound like there's at least evidence that further from Africa, there, there's there's some element of distance from the source. We, there's increased levels of extinction. If you look at the Americas and, and Australia, is that a fair sort of take on this? Well, it's increased levels of extinction, but it's also closer in time. So yeah. you know, the, obviously, colonization right outside of Saudi Arabia happened really long time ago, whereas in the Americas, they were arrival to the Americas was really kind of the last big continental colonization. Now, another thing to kind of think about is during the Holocene of the last 10,000 years, there's also colonization of islands in the Pacific. And those islands, um, while they're not, you know, they don't have megafauna there, the arrival of humans there did coincide with extinction of lots and lots of birds. And most of those birds, a lot of those birds were terrestrial birds, kind of occupying these mammalian niches. And uh, human arrival there, and our commensals, right, the human arrival with rats uh, as commensal species is, is coincident with extinction of those. So, you know, in the field, there's been a big debate between he whether humans caused extinctions or climate caused extinctions. And there's probably a synergy between the two. Everything we know where it's been studied really well suggests that there may be a role for both. And I'll say that in California, we've studied, uh, as I said, I study really the last 10,000 years. So I'm not studying so much the species that went extinct, but in fact, the response of the animals that didn't to the extinction event. And so in California, excavation of a cave in the northern part of the state showed us that there was a response in the small mammals too. And so they're not being hunted by, by humans, but they're rebounding in different ways. There's a very big shift in the community structure. We end up with a rise of these weedy species, the deer mice, and a demise of more specialized species. They, they, their populations decline in abundance. And so there really are big effects on the animals. And whether that's due, it probably is due both to the extinction of the large animals, which clearly determined the habitat structure in some way, but it also may be due and is likely due to changes in climate. So you mentioned that in Africa, there was a better synergy than uh, humans and animals in the Americas. And I was just curious about the adaptive capabilities that animals developed. So are you, are you wanting me to take this into the future? into the human-dominant landscapes of the future? I think so. I mean, I think that one thing that's a big theme of this story and why it's so sort of appropriate for the Generation Anthropocene podcast is that this story of uh, human-environment interaction goes back a long, long way, and it's where it's problematic is much deeper than some people may think. But, of course, today the, the rate of change is so accelerated that, I mean, all of it sort of speaks to our deeper instincts and our deeper you know, relationship with the natural world. Um, so, so yeah, I think <laughs> lots so, to cover. So, so, you know, you brought up a really important point and one that I was going to hammer, and that is the rate of change, the rate of colonization, the evolutionary rate, the rate of the change to the environment matters a lot to species. And the reason it matters is because evolution proceeds in fits and starts, there's all sorts of different kind of pressures on species. But in terms of things like novelty, the evolution, the ability to, to evolve completely different kind of toolkits 
is limited by mutation rate. Mutation takes time. Those mutations take time to accumulate. And as much as we might like, very rarely does one mutation confer some sort of advantage in any situation. It's much more complicated than that. And so when things change very, very rapidly, the bottom line is, and this is really an important message for the Anthropocene and for the future, is what you see is, for the most part, the only thing we have. And what, what humans are doing to the landscape is, for the most part, we are eliminating diversity. And that doesn't mean just eliminating species. We're picking away at the diversity within species by limiting the numbers of populations, the numbers of individuals, and their ability to move back and forth. And as you isolate these individual adaptations or toolkits, you know, that it means that the species can't assimilate, assimilate these things to, to one kind of suite of responses. And so, evolution is not going to save us. So if you look at the rate of species elimination that we're encountering now, it's going to take tens of millions of years to accumulate that kind of species diversity again. And so in a sense, what you see now is all we have. The kind, so the rate of change is really important. And it probably was one of the big players in terms of human colonization of the globe, even at the Pleistocene, because things happened very fast. In North America, that human colonization is been called a blitzkrieg. And so animals didn't really have a lot of time to figure out how to evolve and evade these human predators. And in Africa, where they're kind of humans are evolving in Africa at the same time these animals are, that co-evolution means that they're, uh, in a sense, a little bit more tolerant. Do you have a take on on the Anthropocene debate? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or is it just more important that, you know, that we're using this term to, to talk about the scale of impact today? I mean, what's, what's your read on the situation? So in some ways, the Anthropocene, I mean, I mean, there are all sorts of nice tie points. And so a classic, you know, paleontologist who's looking at or geologist who's looking at the fossil record and defining the end of one era or the, you know, the beginning of another is looking for tie points. In a sense, virtually every geologic age is defined by something in the biotic record. Now, who's going to be around to look at the nuances of how we define formally the Anthropocene? You know, that's an interesting question. So it's in some ways esoteric to think of defining the Anthropocene in this, you know, really big way. On the other hand, it does it does bring this kind of recognition to the amount of impact humans are having on the planet. I mean, we are a geologic force. There is a record of our dominance of the planet that is preserved in the rock record. So in some ways, it does elevate the importance of what we've done, and it provides you know, a sophistication of of our ability to kind of communicate it. Actually, I think I don't want to get stuck on the nuances because what I think for new terms like something like the Anthropocene, what you want to do is open it up for further conversation. You don't want to obscure the conversation. You want to make it more liberating. And so I think you know, whether or not there's a formal cause, I mean, I, I really, I don't care. Yeah. What I care about more is that when I say something about the Anthropocene, whether it's 1950 or the year 1000 or whatever it is, that people understand what we're talking about. And, and what that means is human domination of the earth. Liz Hadley, this has been such a delight. What a pleasure. I'm uh, sorry it took so long to get you into studio, but uh, we're really grateful for your time and, uh, and for talking with us Thank today. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you it's been so fun. much. That was great.
Our show is produced by Mike Osborne, Miles Trayer, and me, Leslie Chang. Our theme music is by Maserati. We want to thank Pam Natson, Dean of Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. We also want to thank Tom Hayden. This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1. Our website is genanthro.com, and you can find us on Twitter at genanthropocene. That's it for the show this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.